0: Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that is page 815 in the church Bibles. In just a second or two, we're going to begin reading from verse 29 all the way to verse 34. Verse 29, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read God's Word and we are um, going to... Pray and ask God for his help. And for those of you who have tomorrow off, God bless you with many good things and rest and so on as you um, enjoy the holiday. Okay. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 29, Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, Why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. You'll notice that's in quotes. Paul takes that from a pagan poet. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Okay, let's pray and ask God for his blessing. And let's thank God. For his word and ask him to grant us understanding of it. Father, in this moment of um, great privilege and great need, please help us now as your word is preached. Help me to speak, help us to listen, to understand, to believe in order to obey. And we would ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, clearly this message of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was on the mind and lips of the Apostle Paul since the day that Paul came to see that Jesus who was crucified and Jesus who was buried was now alive. And that reality dramatically changed Paul's life forever. Indeed, even in just a thumbnail sketch of the New Testament book of Acts, you'll find over and over again, listen carefully, the sermons that Paul preached and, and all the sermons in Acts by and large... Um, were announcements of the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and a resurrection that was coming, and as then uh, so now some people mocked the message you can read this in Acts seventeen some people had questions and a few believed. Now we should not be surprised by this. Jesus told us something like this: uh, these proportions when he when he told the parable of the sower. There's going to be so many people who will not believe and a, and a few people who will believe. That's just been the Christian proportions since uh, the gospel came on the sea. See. Nevertheless, we affirm this morning that the resurrection is a fact. Jesus is alive. There is coming a day of pronouncement over the righteous and over the unrighteous. So then we shouldn't be surprised since this is sure that Paul spilt a whole lot of ink in chapter 15 telling us there's going to be a resurrection of the dead and pointing to the fact, and he's going to do this again. He's pointing to the fact that everything true about the inevitability of the resurrection exercises some pressure on the now. In other words, the resurrection is just not a good promise for those of us who know loved ones who passed away or just for us when we come near our death. The the resurrection has far more influence than that. The resurrection exercises some pressure on our everyday living and our everyday thinking about our everyday living as followers of Jesus Christ. Which again is why Paul gives so much ink to this topic of resurrection, and so we said last time, if your Bible is open, you'll see this in verse twelve, that there were some people in the Corinthian context who were saying, "Well, there's no resurrection from the dead," and so Paul, very carefully and very rationally, this is not an emotional argument, very logically, he begins to show his readers the implications of there being no resurrection. An implication which will not simply make the Christian life difficult. It will make the Christian life completely foolish if there's no resurrection. That if there is no resurrection, verse 13, you'll see this. Christ is still dead. The dead are dead. Preaching is useless. Evangelism is a dreadful waste of time and on and on. Indeed, without the resurrection, the picture of our life is really a picture of despair. You wake up. You eat. You work. You play. You sleep. You do that roughly 26, 27,000 times, and then that is it. You're dead. Shakespeare, Macbeth, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's life without a resurrection. Now, In the verses this morning, Paul continues on in his argument, and we're going to see this, if your Bible's open, beginning with a phrase, which is the title of our talk, verse 29, if there is no resurrection. So once again, Paul begins to underpin the fact that if a person is prepared to say there's no resurrection, then there are some obvious implications to this, and beginning In verse 29, he tells us, and would you please notice them with me in turn as we move along. First of all, if there's no resurrection, verse 29, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If you like, it's our first point. Why this strange practice? Evidently, something was happening there whereby people were being baptized on behalf of others who had already died. This would be a baptism by proxy. Oh, says someone. Okay, that's why the Mormon Church. Practices this? Okay, then I get it. If it's in the Bible, then it must be okay. No, don't be silly. There are many things described in the Bible that are not okay. A polygamy, a polygamy, excuse me, is described in the Bible, but it doesn't make it okay. Rebellion, divorce is described in the Bible, but it doesn't make it okay. The Book of Job is filled with statements from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, but those statements were not okay. I always laugh many years ago I got a men's calendar and they had an inspirational quote and, and the calendar had all these quotes from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar and you read it and like God's like nothing they said is right don't listen to them yet it was on my calendar but anyway so just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's okay okay so then what do these statements mean and what do we do with them well what we have to do is we need to set about a proper interpretation principle here a- and here is one What do you do with a strange text that you can't find anywhere else in the whole of the scripture? What do you do with it? What's a good technique? Well, you skip it. Ha, 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 ha. No, you don't skip it. This is what you do. You put down what you know and you put down what you don't know. What is known here is that Paul knew what he meant. The people he wrote to knew what he meant. And frankly, we can't be exactly sure what he meant. But what we can do is although we may not know what it means, we begin, begin to know what it doesn't mean. In other words, what you do is you rule out false options. This is reduction to absurdity. You reveal the false to get to the truth. This is an argument of logic, to be quite frankly, frank, frank with you. And to do this, what we need to do is turn to the rest of the Scripture. So, so this is what we know with certainty about what these verses do not mean. Paul was not teaching that a dead person can be saved from God's wrath on their sin by having another person being baptized for them on their behalf. That's not the gospel. There is no place in the Bible which speaks to a dead person getting some kind of spiritual help as a result of someone being baptized for them after they die. Moreover, baptismal regeneration, the idea that someone can be saved from their sins by being baptized is not the gospel. And therefore, something the Bible does not teach. So follow this line of thinking. If you cannot save yourself by being baptized, then why would one think that they could save someone else by being baptized on their behalf? And for a moment, let's just say that baptism uh, on behalf of the dead was a true thing. Let's just say that was true. Then who's to say we wouldn't live any way we like on this earth and then... Because, you know, we think ourselves so clever. Put in our last will and testament. And by the way, make sure Uncle Bernie's baptized for me. And if he can't do it, then have Aunt Betty do it. Because, you know, she's more reliable anyway. So you see, this is clear foolishness. Baptism, baptism of any kind, dead or alive, does not provide salvation. It simply explains salvation. Because we know, at least we should know, when we think, think of terms of salvation, salvation is by grace through faith, says Paul. Ephesians 2.89. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not for yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.38. The righteous live by faith. Therefore, anytime anyone bears testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ... It will not have anything to do with inheriting anything from anyone or benefiting from someone being baptized on their behalf. Subsequently, listen carefully, a post-death conversion is something God does not permit. In other words, there's no second chance to receive God's forgiveness in Jesus or any spiritual help of any kind after someone has died. Listen to the Bible. It's very, very plain. Hebrews 9.27 People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Death, says the Bible, ends all opportunity for salvation, which is why as Christians we do not pray for the dead. The destiny of the dead is a sealed and settled destiny. There is nothing we can do for anyone past their death, nor anything anyone can do for us past our death. So we can't light a candle, we can't say a mass, we can't pray the uh, novena of Jude, we, we can't get baptized for someone else, or, and on and on. Why can't we? Well, because the Bible is very, very clear. There is no second chance past death. And if you think about this, this is why life matters so much now. This is why the life of those who we love and we rub shoulders with on a routine basis, who are outside of Jesus Christ, this is why their life matters so much now. This is why the Bible says today, not tomorrow, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Now is the day of salvation. Now, follow the logic. It's pretty simple. Now is the day because you do not know if this moment will ever come again. And you do not know when your last moment is. So then, if you don't know when it's coming again, if you don't know when your last moment is, then now is the day. If you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. So we can know for sure that whatever is being referred to here, there is no reason to believe a baptism for a dead person can achieve salvation. Okay, then just for a minute or two, what is baptism? It's a good question. Let me just tell you what it is. Baptism is a picture of what, of what has already taken place in the person's life. Baptism is a picture God has chosen to reveal what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished by his suffering and death on the cross, which means we are not baptized to become a Christian. We are baptized because we are Christians. Huge difference. And as you follow along that line, uh, sensible conclusions are drawn. Obedient Christians are Christians who have been or soon will be baptized if they are physically able to do so. Jesus said, it's pretty simple. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and do what? He said to baptize people. And loved ones, if you're here Sunday by Sunday and you profess faith in Jesus Christ, then I praise God along with you. But if you haven't as of yet been baptized, then the big question is, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? The only thing I can think of in northern Minnesota in our context is for the lakes to warm up a little bit. And I'm with you because I always have to get in the cold lakes to baptize people. But seriously, what are you waiting for? If you've never been baptized, do not be disobedient. Baptism is an act of obedient faith that proclaims publicly that you're a Jesus guy and you're a Jesus girl or you're a Jesus kid. Baptism, which doesn't save, still matters greatly. So then the bottom line to verse 29. There's no resurrection. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? The bottom line is something was going on in Corinth. Obscure though it was. There were people in the church who were being baptized on behalf of the dead. And that is heresy. So a good question would be, okay, if it's heresy, then why doesn't Paul correct them? Because some people could argue and some people do. There's like about 40, 45 different ways people view this. Since he doesn't correct them, there has to be a reason for it, or maybe it's not so bad, right? Well, it is bad. We made that clear. But I think he doesn't tackle the issue because that's not the issue before them. The issue before them is if some people are saying there's no resurrection, then everything about your now would be dramatically changed. So those in the Corinthian church who are saying no resurrection, Paul's asked the simple question, okay, then why are you baptizing by by proxy? You're so certain that there's nothing past death, then why are you practicing this strange practice? And as you continue on, and this is pretty clear, I think, he might be saying, guys, I think you have a sneaking suspicion there is a resurrection. Because then why are you doing this? If if when you're dead, you're dead, why are you baptizing by proxy? Now, it doesn't take too much of a leap to think about this in our own context. We come across people all the time who have no affection for Jesus Christ. They are not saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They're not gospel people. But when tragedy comes and when death comes, what do they say? And I'm glad they say it. Will you please pray for me? I need all the help I can get. I'm with you. Or in the context of death, well, he's a good person, so he'll be fine. Now, why do so many people do this? They do this, and listen carefully. This is high brain stuff, but we need to know it. They do this because the denial of life after death and a judgment to follow is an unsustainable denial. Everyone knows by nature that life is not all there is. There's something past our death. Because God, Ecclesiastes 3.11, has set eternity in men and women's hearts. Because Romans 1.18, what is known about God is clearly seen so that men and women and young people are without excuse. Therefore, says the Bible, it is not natural to disbelieve there is no life after death. It is rebellion. It is rebellion because indifference to God in this is restricting a conscience which God created to know that there's something past death for everyone. 75 to 80% of people still believe that there is a heaven or a hell. Why is that the case? Because God put that in the very psyche, in the very conscience of every person who's ever existed or ever will exist. So, for someone to say there is no resurrection is a denial of what is self-evident in the very center of their essence because God has made it self-evident. It's part of being made in His image. So, So a long time ago, when I was speaking to my atheist friend at a funeral, he said, and this is not the person's name, but he said, John will be fine. John was a good guy. He'll be fine. I said to him, wait a minute. John's either dead and gone forever, or there's something past death. Which one is it? Because you can't let him have that. So in effect, the Corinthians were caught out, and he says, hey guys, uh, no resurrection? Okay, then why why are you baptizing on behalf of the dead? It's because in your heart of hearts, you know there's a resurrection. You know there's a resurrection. It could be something as simple as this. Why do so many people show up on an Easter Sunday and then the next Sunday they're not there? Well, there could be many reasons. There could be many reasons. But one of the main and plain reasons is everybody knows there's something past death. Because God made it that way. So that's our first question, why the saints practice. Second question, why am I willing to be persecuted? And again, it's pretty straightforward. If there's no resurrection, you'll see this. If your Bible's open, why would Paul and his ministry team, verse 30, because he says, us... Why would all of us put it on the line every day for Jesus? Verse 30. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Verse 31. Why am I dying every day? Verse 32. Why am I going to Ephesus, preaching the gospel, and putting myself under a world of a hurt? Why am I doing that? You know, am I a masochist? Is my ego so out of check that I'm just trying to draw attention to myself, mere human reasons? Why not, and you see this in verse 32, why not just turn on my inner fat Albert, right? Sorry about this. Hey, 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 you know, going to have a good time, you know? Why not just waste away in Margaritaville? To quote Jimmy Buffett, why should I live a life of such, such, such suffering if there's no resurrection, I go into Derby. I have my bottom handed to me. I go into Lystra, I have my bottom handed to me. I go into Philippi. It's the same thing. Everywhere I go, I suffer so much for Jesus. So if there is no resurrection, then I'm a sick, masochistic, self-advancing, ego-driven fool. That's what Paul's saying. And loved ones, the point is pretty plain. What is the point of any present suffering for the sake of the gospel if there is no future delight promised by the gospel? What is the point of coming to grips with the very clear self-denying ministry of the biblical gospel if there's no resurrection? If there is no eternity and a perfect place with our perfect God and His perfected people, what's the point? Well, the answer is clear. It's pointless if there's no resurrection. So in verse 32 and following, actually it's verse, no, it is verse 32, Paul re- refers to a specific occasion, which may be figurative, it may be literal. He may very well have been put into arena with a wild beast, but it's unlikely because he was a Roman citizen. However, there were variances in his life in this. Paul had his face slapped, which never should happen to a Roman citizen, but it did. So perhaps maybe he really was running for his life in the arena. But please, listen carefully. Whatever it was physically to Paul, Paul tells us exactly what it was in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and following, what it was for him practically. All you'd have to do is turn a page or two and you'll find this. This is what happened to Paul in Ephesus. He says, chapter 1, verse 8, 2 Corinthians, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. You hear that? We despaired of life itself. And please notice this in passing. This is a seasoned, mature, Christian apostle speaking of his experience as a Christian and his experience wasn't all fabulous, wasn't it? He wasn't marching around, poking out his chest and saying, you know, I'm going to live a fearless life for Jesus. I'm going to live my promised life land um, promised land life now he wasn't saying all that stupid stuff effective gospel ministry will not allot for that kind of foolishness indeed verse 9 we felt we had received the sentence of death but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises here it is the dead now isn't this true guys When all is well and when all is rosy, we tend to just go skipping along. Then suddenly something comes. Trouble in the family, illness, trouble in the workplace, a wayward teen, unchecked sins. And in that difficulty, we are forced back onto God. And God purposes these things that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. And those of us who are movers and shakers those of us who are prone to self-reliance, or those of us who try and live under the radar, we will have these God events to force us back onto God if we are truly His. So what we run from, God brings us to. This is the Puritans. It is in shunning the trouble that we miss the blessings. And what kind of God would do such a thing? Well, He is a God, 2 Corinthians 1.10, who raises the dead. A God who is preparing his people for forever. And evidently, Paul can't speak of God without thinking about the resurrection. Why is that the case? Just think with me for a moment. Why is that the case? Well, remember, Paul used to live like Jesus was dead. He didn't live as an atheist. He, he lived as something far more dangerous. He, he lived as a religious person. He lived a religious life. And his life was filled with hate and anger and fits of rage. And he was hating Jesus' people. And that's what religion will eventually do to people. He hated gospel advancement. He always tried to get in the way of gospel spreading. But when Jesus met Paul on the Damascus Road and said to Paul, Will you just cut it out? I'm alive. Why do you keep fighting me, Paul? I'm alive. When that happened, then by grace, Paul made the discovery And he began to understand and he began to preach all over the place that the risen Christ alone had saved him from God's wrath on sin. And the risen Christ alone is saving him from sin's power in his life. And the risen Christ alone will one day in its culmination at the resurrection save him from sin's presence for all eternity. Now listen carefully. If all that is true, And by the way, that's true for everyone who names the name of Christ here this morning. If all that is true, then what is Paul going to do? What is any thinking Christian going to do? You're just going to sit out? You're going to lay low? You're going to kick back? You're going to do the eating and drinking and partying thing? No. No. Listen to C.T. Studd. If Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Uh, Jimmy Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And Paul would say, I hear you, brothers. I hear you. And let me just add to it. Jesus is alive and there is a resurrection and there is a day of accounting. And because of that, I'm going to keep my hands to the plow. I'm going to keep my hands to the plow for Jesus. So again, why would a believer like Paul give up so much, sacrifice so much, rearrange his life, put his life in so much danger advancing the gospel? Why would he endure ridicule and abuse from people outside and inside the church? Well, there's only one reason. Jesus is alive. There is a resurrection. There is a day of accounting coming before him. Now, again, Paul puts this plain as rain. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and following. For Christ's love compels us. And he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And here it is again. And was raised again. 2 Corinthians 4, 9. Paul doing the same thing. We are hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, here we are again, will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. In other words, Paul, why are you putting it on the line for gospel ministry for Jesus? Because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to raise the dead. We will stand before Jesus. And then he says this, therefore don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Now stop for a second. That is not just about growing old. I won't let that be. That's not the context. You can't just say, well, because I'm going old I can take solace in this. No. This is being wasted away for laying it on the line for gospel ministry. And because that's true, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what? On what is Seen? No. But we fix our eyes on what is unseen. Why? Because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And that is a well lived life for Jesus. That's Paul's life. And the principle is clear. It's clear. There is no power in the Christian life without crucifixion pain. There is no crown without a cross. It is in dying that I live. It is in weakness that I am strong. It is in poverty that I become rich. It is emptiness that I become full. It is in self-forgiveness that I become useful. And so many have that turned around. I want a crown. I want to live. I want to be strong. I want to be rich. I want to be full. I want to to think about myself and and be useful for myself. I've got bucket lists I need to do stuff with. And it takes a long time for us to believe this and to learn this. As opposed to, I want spirituality with no rules. In fact, I'm going to make up some rules. I want a God who indulges me but never makes any demands of me. But again, the Bible teaches something far better. We are saved not to sit, but to serve. We are saved not to pull up, but to pour out. And you know, the one thing which I think makes it so hard for us to, to grab onto this reality and to actually believe that, is because we live in a time and a place where we know nothing of the kind of suffering that Paul has endured. We live in a post-Reformation society. We, we don't know what genuine persecution is like. I mean, you know, we may pick a fight on social media we might have an argument with some neighbor across the ro- road. But, you know, that's the spiritual equivalent, equivalent of a, of a uh, water balloon fight. This is a big deal. You go home, you eat, you sleep. Nothing's really affected. Maybe your ego and that's about it. Now, I want you to stay with me because this is actually encouraging. We may think now, at least I think now, that I would break down very easily if persecution would come to me. And if you think that way, I'm going to tell you that's really good. It's good for you to think this way. And this is why I say it. Remember your Bible. Very simple, right? It was the bombastic Peter who said, you know, bring it on, Jesus. I can take everything. Bring it on. Bring it on. Bring it on. I'm with you. Bring it on. And then he was cornered by a little girl. By the fire. He becomes a wet noodle. But then there's Paul. Paul who felt like he was going to die. 2 Corinthians 1.9 in gospel ministry. Paul who said he was the least of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15.7. Paul who said, Ephesians 3.8, I am am less than the least of all the Lord's people. Paul, 1 Timothy 1.15, I'm the worst of all sinners. It was that Paul, in his weakness, by God's power, endured those incredibly harsh persecutions and advanced the gospel probably with less than any person had in all of history. You see? Listen to J.I. Packer. The weaker we are, and some of us cannot stand weakness, but the weaker we are, the harder we lean, and the harder we lean, the more God supplies, and so what we need now is lots of leaning Christians, lots of leaning Christians. We have all the resources we can imagine in America. We have all the bells and whistles. We have all the stuff, and yet the church continues to shrink. Why is that the case? We're power and power. Look at us. We are so successful. And we won't put on the garments of persecution. We won't put on the way of life that says, I'm going to have to, for Jesus' sake. So, so if God is pleased to allow us to meet persecution, we can be sure God will be pleased to help us endure persecution as we advance the name of Jesus Christ in all the places that he's put us. Final point. Okay, number one, if there's no resurrection, then why this strange practice? Number two, if there's no resurrection, why am I willing to be persecuted? Finally, number three, if there's no resurrection, here we are again, why not just party? It's verse 32b, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That was the formula of the Epicureans, right? This is the mantra of Jimmy Buffett. We've already alluded to him. Wasting away in Margaritaville. We have our slippers on and our shorts and on our work boots and our work pants. That, by the way, is a quotation from uh, verse 32b, is a quotation from Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. Listen to John MacArthur on this. This quote reflected the hopeless, boredom-driven, hedonistic lifestyle of the backsliding 8th century B.C. Israelite. That's Isaiah twenty-two, thirteen. Not being very nice, but he is being very true. So, no resurrection? Well, then let's just buy into the pattern of the world and say silly, sting things that no one really believes. You only live once. All there is is now. All that matters is you're happy. But deep in those people's hearts, when they put their head on the pillow at night, there is a sneaking suspicion. I guarantee it. There's a sneaking suspicion that, yeah, we only might get one passage through this life, but there is something coming past the now. There is something coming, and I'm pretty sure it has to do with God Almighty. So Paul says, if you remove the resurrection, then the self-indulgent, pleasure-seeking dream, that's understandable. No resurrection, I get that. So what he does then, he concludes with verses 33 and 34. Verses 33, you'll see it there as a proverb. Do not be misled. Do not deviate from the course. That's what he's saying. Bad company corrupts good character. Okay, what's he saying? Well, you become like the company you keep. You become like the ideas you spend time with. You become like the books you read. There's a gentleman who his name is Tremendous Jones. I don't know how he got the first name, but his last name is Jones. He'll probably be happy that I quoted him, Tremendous Jones, because Tremendous people usually like being quoted. But anyway, he said something very good. You'll be the same person five years from now, except for the people you meet and the books that you read. So you become like the books you read. Fill your mind with only getting and greed. You'll become a greedy person. If you hang around critical people, you'll become a critical person. If you hang around slanderers, you'll become a slanderer. So it's the presence that we keep. This is what Paul is saying. The presence that we keep will definitely have an impact on our life. As you believe as they do, you will behave as they do. Some of the Corinthians were believing, hanging around the no resurrection people, and it began to show in their life. He goes on, verse 34, think, come back to your senses. Uh, Luther translates this, snap out of it. Literally, it reads, get out of your drunken stupor. Some were strained so far that Paul essentially says, you guys are drunk. You don't know what you're doing. There is a resurrection. Verse 34b, your ignorance of God <clears throat> then has moral implications in your life. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is what it means. Right doctrine leads to right conduct. Unsound doctrine leads to wrong conduct. Ignorance in your doctrine leads to an ignorant, ineffective, gospel-advancing conduct in your life. Ask yourself this question. Don't don't answer it out loud. But when's the last time you pulled up a book about doctrine? And just said, I'm going to pour into knowing the essential truths of the Christian faith as opposed to, I'm going to read a book that has more of a devotional type thing. They're both good, but one's better. One's better. One's better. I mean, if you want to live like Jesus lived, and we're going to have to think like Jesus thought. In order to do that, we're going to have to know the mind of God. The subjective nature of Christianity is making a hash out of Christianity in our day. I mean, all you have to do is say, I was led, or it's in my heart. And everybody assumes it must be fine. No one will open their Bible just to check to make sure that it's true. So that's why Paul says, Come back to your senses. This is uh, Alistair Begg. We cannot adjust the character of God to accommodate ourselves. If we do, we are either in sin or planning to sin. I think Paul would agree. In fact, in verse 34, and Paul says, There are some who are ignorant of God. You can't see it in the English, but it's very clear in the Greek. What he's doing, he's implying that you're failing to receive what you were given. In other words, Paul is saying, you're not applying my sermons to your life, right? You're not, you're not taking my presentation and any, making any application in your life. And then he says at the end, you see it there, I say this to your shame. You talk a good talk. You might even walk a good walk, but you don't know God. You're ignorant of God. Well, why was that the case? Why would he say such a horribly mean thing? Well, they were living as if there was no resurrection. They were living as if there was no day of accounting and that worked itself out into, in all honesty, the average American life. Verse 32. Let's eat and let's drink because tomorrow, that's it. That's it. What you and I believe about the future will affect how we behave in the present what you and i believe about the future will will affect how we behave in the present. and so since jesus is coming soon paul says he says i want to have a zeal for jesus i i i want to be ready let me just close with this thought and then we'll be done jesus always taught that we have the best things win last and because of gospel ministry the worst is usually first. So we grow rich by our losses and our crosses. We rise by our falls. We live by dying. We become full by being emptied. The later on in heaven is so much better than the now on earth. So it makes all the sense in the world that we bear the present cross so that we might be given the future crown. Can you believe I preached this sermon on a holiday weekend? <laughs> I was thinking, that's just the way it ended. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to switch it around. <laughs> Maybe I should have taught the other passages first. Thanks for your attention. Let's bow and pray. Oh, Father, we praise you that the grace that was given for sinners to be made righteous is the same grace that was given for sinners like me to become more holy. And we thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul and the, and the clarity of which he taught that if you take out the resurrection, then life is useless and a big waste of time eventually. And so, Father, we pray for the grace to think hard about these things. We, we stand uncontemned before you as Christians because we belong to Jesus Christ. But even in our not being condemned, we still have work to do as far as growing in obedience. And so to whatever degrees you would have us grow, please give us the grace to do this. Paul's words are serious. Many of us are growing older and our time is getting shorter and shorter on this planet. And we wish to make more meaningful impact for you in the days that we've been given. So to that degree and to your praise, we would ask that you would answer these prayers as you bless your people, God, greatly this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen.